Hello, welcome to Relatable. This is your host, Teresa Freeman. In this episode, we find out what soft skills are necessary for a career in medicine. Our guest, Dr. Rick Layfield, is an orthopedic surgeon at the Center for Advanced Orthopedics in Northern Virginia. What does it take to make it through medical school? What does a day in the life of a surgeon look like? And what happened to convince Dr. Layfield to pursue medicine after his first year of mediocre academic performance in college? Listen in to find out and to learn more about his journey to being a successful orthopedic surgeon. Enjoy this episode. Relatable. I'm talking with Dr. Rick Lakefield. Thank you so much for coming and being on the podcast. Sure. Uh, we've been chasing you for a minute, <laughs> yes. so I uh, appreciate you being here. Um, you're at the Center for Advanced Orthopedics, and you're focused on sports medicine as an orthopedic surgeon, right? Correct. It's a mouthful. Yes. Uh, what I'd love to start with is tell me a little bit about you're my first orthopedic surgeon. Okay. Um, we've talked to one other doctor who was real heavily involved with Make-A-Wish, and okay. she was more of a pediatric, concierge isn't the right word, but sort of intermediary <laughs> in Minnesota. So that's like the only other okay. doctor. So I, I'm like fascinated because I don't know a lot about being a doctor or what that's all sure. about. So tell me a little bit about as, a, as an orthopedic surgeon, like what's a typical day in the life? So it depends on uh, if I'm in the office or in surgery. Okay. So uh, I'm in the office uh, two and a half, three days a week. See... 30-ish patients a day, and a lot of those are either preoperative or postoperative. Uh, I see a lot of patients still with just general knee pain, back pain, leg pain, uh, just general things, but most people come in to see me because they feel like something's structurally wrong with them. There, an, in, an injury occurred. I see a lot of sports medicine young people, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. a lot of high school athletes, uh, and some have been treated by their athletic trainer, and then they're sent to me because they're not progressing well with, with treatment or there was a noted injury on the field. Uh, so I do see some kids come in, crutches, can't wait bear, embraces, things like that. Um, but mostly office is eight to five. Um, 30 seeing, patients is a lot though. Yeah, it depends. Is it, it depends. You're moving at a pretty fast clip, right? True, and it, post-operative patients are quicker, typically, yeah. if yeah. they're go- doing well, which, you know, knock on wood they are, yeah. then they go quick. If there's you know, complications or problems, then they go a little slower. But the new patients are usually the longer ones, especially the young people, because I have parents there, uh, sometimes one parent on the phone, one parent in person, yeah. and they're asking questions back and forth. The kid's asking questions, the parents are asking questions, everybody wants to know, especially when you're talking about surgery on a 14, 15-year-old kid that's going to be nine months of rehabilitation and you know some of these kids want to play sports in college or more than that and you're telling them that maybe you know with the surgery hopefully they'll get back to that but there's a possible they will not yeah and so there's some sometimes some tears and some hand wringing from the parents and the kids as well Uh, so those can take a little bit longer Um, and then surgery uh, one to two days a week um, usually between let's say three and seven surgeries a day some of them being quick some of them being longer the reconstructions are usually hour and a half to two hours uh the standard say knee arthroscopy about 30 minutes i do some fractures once in a while which are 
anywhere, you know, could be complex or, you know, not complex, maybe 30 minutes to two hours, depending on that. And, uh, and that's pretty much what I do. Yeah. <laughs> Is that, um, do you do knee replacements and hip replacements? I or? did. I don't anymore. I do only arthroscopic surgery, not only, but I do 90% arthroscopic surgery, which is scope, looking at a computer, a TV screen with the camera. Uh, I do some open surgery, some fractures and things like that, but primarily arthroscopic things. Uh, about seven, eight years ago, I gave up knee arthroplasty, which is knee replacement. I never really did hip replacement. I did for fractures. I used to be on call through the emergency room uh, where I would do fractures on call, and sometimes you do hip replacements on, on call for fractures. But uh, from a standpoint of general elective knee and hip mm -hmm. arthrost, uh, arthroplasty, I don't do that anymore. And if, if somebody breaks something, like in sport or mm -hmm. in whatever, uh, typically does it require surgery or it just depends? Like you, It depends. Like we were talking before, yeah. my, my son recently broke his tibia <laughs> playing basketball, and, and he's young, he's 13, uh, and it was not displaced, we didn't require surgery. But there are times that those would require surgery. Um, hand injuries sometimes do, sometimes don't. Long bones are more apt to need surgery than, than the smaller bones, like the hand bones and things. But mm. um, it really depends on angulation, displacement, uh, severity of the fracture, honestly. And like, this is just because you know, <laughs> I'm just kind of curious. So if someone, if you are doing surgery and like someone breaks something, when you say like you're, are you... What do you, are you fusing a bone together? Are you, how do you fix it? Like, what do you actually so do? We usually we're fixing the bone because it's out of place, which we call, you know, displaced. I see. So we reduce it, which means put it back together. And then typically if you're there and it's open, you want to then fix it because you can reduce it and then cast it, but it's not as stable as if you put metal plates and screws or I pins see. into it. Uh -huh. So. Uh, you put the bone back together, and then typically you'll put a plate and screws to hold the bone while it heals. Uh, the body still has to heal it, because if the body doesn't heal it, the plate will eventually break. Because if there's enough movement between the bones, the plate will fail. Ah. And so if a plate breaks, it's almost universally because the bone didn't heal. But the kids and, and people I deal with typically have good healing profiles. The people you worry about are older, osteoporotic bone, weak bone. Uh, you know, diabetics, uh, you know, are... sicker people, yeah. they have a higher chance of not healing. Okay. Did you always know that you wanted to be a doctor? Tell me a little bit about your, your path. Uh, I didn't always know it, but I always thought about it. Really? I remember talking to my family growing up and I was probably 13 or 14. And yeah. They would just ask, well, what do you want to be when yeah. you grow up yeah. kind of thing? And I'd say, I think I'll probably be a doctor. And we, we didn't have anybody in our family who was a doctor, so was the answer was, why is that? And I said, well, I don't really know. It's just something I think about. Really? Uh, but I don't know why I thought about that. Because I didn't have anybody to, as a mentor or someone to look to, to say, oh, my grandfather or my uncle or my aunt was a doctor. <laughs> I don't have anyone. I'm the first one in the family. And then tell me, just because from like a course, just the schooling and and that process like were you a in, like a pretty good student inherently like was that something you had to work really hard at you know you think of it in terms of the sciences yeah. and it, it, early I was a good I always tell people I used to be smart I was really <laughs> a good student growing up yeah. early uh in fact I skipped a grade uh so ah. I'm younger than I'm supposed to be I skipped second grade uh so early on I was I didn't have to work very hard to get good grades uh probably through high school and then I went to college at uh, Vanderbilt University oh, yeah. and that's when I started to have to 
to work a little bit more uh, because you know every every level gets a little bit more advanced and a little bit higher functioning folks uh, especially right. at, at better schools and then yeah. graduate schools and things and your your you know the community you're a part of is a little bit higher functioning so you have to rise above that so you have a, a higher bar so I start, started working more in college uh, on my grades and actually my first year in college I didn't do extremely well I didn't know really what I want to do I was undecided um, going through this with my daughter right now who's just uh, applying to college and she has to choose a major yeah. for most of these schools. And I never had to choose a major. I could yeah. be undecided. And I was very undecided. I, if I had to choose a major, I don't know what I would have chosen, honestly. Yeah. And so I went in as undecided. And my first year, I got pretty poor grades because I wasn't really excited about anything I was doing. My classes were very basic, English, economics, political science, and nothing really sparked my interest. And I didn't take any science classes. And so I kind of was at a crossroads a little bit after my first year because I got grades worse than I've ever gotten before. Hmm. And I wasn't really interested in anything. And so I had to kind of try to figure out what maybe I was good at or what yeah. I was interested in. And so I went back to my thought when I was 13 or 14, well, maybe I'll be a doctor. <laughs> so, <laughs> of all the things, yeah. like to have like a mediocre year right, and then be like, that, I'm going to take starting this. Starting completely behind the eight ball yeah, at that point. Yeah. It wasn't like I had great grades to just keep going <laughs> ease, through. Ease on I had in. to yeah. bring this up, you know, at a certain point. So I told people the story before. On my freshman hall, I think there was 40 of us. And I think about 12 guys were quote unquote pre-med. And they were taking chemistry and biology and physics and all these classes. And every time there was a block of tests, they would come back and they would just be completely down. Yeah. Oh, I failed this. I got a D on that. I can't. I, I'm just everybody was just doing terribly in all these tests. And these were pre-med guys, you know, yeah. thinking, well, they definitely want to be doctors. They want to be pre they, they should be doing well in these classes. <laughs> right. And so I thought about it. I talked to a friend of mine who was more of a liberal arts major. And I said, you know. If this guy and that guy are getting D's in chemistry, what, how am I going to do well in chemistry? Right. And he's like, well, you can try it. I mean, maybe it'll, you know, click. What, what can you do? I mean, you're not finding anything right now. So I decided my sophomore year that I was going to start on the pre-med track, let's say. So I took biology and I took chemistry. And I took maybe, and maybe physics as well. Damn, and that's all, that's all. I started to get A's because I realized it wasn't hard. So I realized what I was good at, uh, what was interesting to me. So English, I'm, I'm a pretty good English student. I was a history, almost a history minor, so I really enjoyed history. But economics, political science just weren't yeah. really interesting me. And so um, I realized quickly that I'm not sure what they were so concerned about because these classes aren't hard. Wow. But it was just that I was good at it. And I didn't have to work as hard to do as well as I did. How did you feel too, like just from a, like if you had always performed well, like that first year, were you, were was that like emotionally difficult just to be like, and you know, and your yeah. parents, right? Like that's a heart, that's a good school. And yeah. you know, were you getting a lot of like stress and pressure to. Yeah, I, I, it, it was, it was more for my dad. So my parents were divorced. And so yeah. my, my mom and I grew up with my on my mom's, in my mom's house. And uh, my dad lived in Florida. I was, was from Maryland. So my dad kind of saw me from afar from the standpoint of grades and things and and he wasn't seeing homework and scores he just would see my report card and i got a's or whatever and so i remember my mom told me that he called her after my first year and said you know he's at a very expensive school that we're paying for right and he's not doing very well so what are you going to say to him and she said i've never had to say anything in my life to him yeah and i'm not going to start now 
he's probably more upset than you wow. are or than I am. So just leave him alone. He'll be fine. Wow. So she did. She didn't say a word. Good but for she told her. Me, she told me later that my dad had asked yeah. her to please intervene or he was going to. And she basically said, we're not going to do that. I love, too, the idea of, like, and I talk about it a lot on here, about finding a thing that you like or finding the thing that sparks your interest yeah. and it doesn't feel like work. You know, yeah. if you, and, and even if it you have to spend time at something or you're going to put in some extra work to, to get a thing, like, you're motivated because you like doing it. Right. And then, you know. So then after you graduate with an undergraduate, then is it right away to med school? Or, For me, it was. And um, did you already know... Well, tell me about that path because I'm, you know, I think it, it takes a while to, for you to find a specialty, right? Right. So more now than when I was going through, people are taking gap years. A lot of kids are taking gap years. I'm hearing that more and more. College and then a year off and then starting in a professional school after that. Uh, I didn't do that. I went straight through. So I got into medical school right around Christmas break of my senior year. Because uh, I remember they called me and told me Merry Christmas and welcome to medical school. Wow. They called me on the phone. That was a pretty nice Christmas present. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I had a friend who actually was at Vanderbilt, and he got into medical school after his second year because it was a combined program. If He had, he was a very exceptional student uh, coming in, and he knew he wanted to go to medicine right away. And so by his sophomore year, his grades were so good, they said, just you can wow. just come on into Vanderbilt. He still was trying to go other places, so he's still working hard, and he had to keep a certain GPA. But that was his path and my path was more the traditional apply after my junior year and MCAT and you know the, that's when you take those like yeah. you take them while you're still in your undergrad still in undergrad I think it was the end of my junior year when I took the MCAT and then I got into I went to University of South Florida in Tampa partially because my dad lived in Florida so I was in state in Florida mm-hmm. uh, and so I went to uh, Tampa that was a real shock to me yeah because a lot of the kids at University of South Florida were from Florida and went to University of Florida, Florida State, Florida, University of South Florida, big schools, uh, big schools that had uh, undergraduate medical type mm-hmm. programs. So when I started, I took anatomy. We took you know all the classes I had to take, anatomy, biochemistry, histology, pharmacology. A lot of these guys had had these, and girls had had these before. So a lot of the first semester in the medical school was review for a lot of my friends. I went to Vanderbilt, which is a very liberal arts school. Uh, you you could take those classes, but you really had to go to the, had a petition the medical school to take it with the medical students. And it was a real process. And at that point I wasn't, you know, I got into this late. I was just focusing on my grades. I couldn't really reach out and branch out too much. And so I was really behind the eight ball starting my freshman year at, in, at University of South Florida because I was really seeing all this for the first time. Mm. And I always tell my kids, you know, when you're in high school, you'll probably do maybe a chapter in a week. And in college, you'll do a chapter in a day. Mm-hmm. And in medical school, we do four to five chapters a day. Wow. So the, the amount of learning was so much accelerated that I would go home after we'd go to class, uh, usually eight to noon lunch and then one to five in the lab. And then go home at five and I would study until nine and then I'd go to sleep and start the next day again. It was every day the same way. But a lot of my friends were like, oh, yeah, want to go play golf. Uh, let's go get something to eat. You know, let's go out. And and I really couldn't do that because I had to work. That was actually, you know, I was thinking about that as you were talking just about the sacrifice or the fact that the persistence because you had a goal. Like what, what kept you right. going? Yeah, that was tough because partly myself and one other friend of mine, the one who went to Vanderbilt, uh, everyone else was 
had gotten jobs or were getting jobs. And some went to professor school later, but most of them had jobs off the, off the bat. And that's a time when a lot of people are meeting people and getting together and then you start seeing weddings happen. And I missed a number of those things because I was in medical school and I didn't have any money and I couldn't just yeah. leave for the weekend because right. I had things. And, and after your second year and third year and fourth year, you're in the hospital a lot. You're doing rotations like you're a resident. And Saturdays and Sundays, you're working and you're on call and you're doing, you just can't just walk away. And so I missed a lot of things in that regard. And, and now when I get back with my friends and we talk about it and they're like, oh, remember so-and-so's wedding? And I'm like, I wasn't there, you know, in the room, everybody went except me, you know, uh, but I had a different goal in mind. And I think it was also, I had a feeling like if I took time away, like a gap year, I might not go back because I just want to keep my head down and get through right. it and just hit those milestones that I had to get. But taking time away, I think would be, would disrupt your your flow and your rhythm a little bit. And how much at that time too, are people getting weeded out around you? It's more of, uh, you, you, there's definitely a weeding out in college to medical mm-hmm. school. But once you're in medical school, you the weeding out process is based on what you wanna do. Okay. So if you say, I wanna be a dermatologist, I wanna be an orthopedic surgeon, I wanna be a plastic surgeon, you pretty much have to be in the top 15 to 20% of your class. Hmm. If you're 80th in your class of 100, you're not going to be a surgeon for the most part. You're not going to be, you're not going to get to choose where you want to go and what you want to do. Uh, you can be a, you can be a physician, you can be sure. an internal medicine pediatrician, you know, I'm not sure. put, putting those down, but if you want a higher level specialty mm-hmm. or you want to choose where you go, I want to be a psychiatrist at this facility in you know the best facility in the world right you're not going to do that as the you know in the lower part of your class and so that's the weeding out process based on where you want to go and so if you have a goal in mind you want to get to you better do well not only get through medical school but do very well in medical school in order to get that so is it super competitive um yes my school was not which i i love about it uh we had study groups uh friends we'd study together like yeah we'd teach each other mm-hmm. i would do a chapter and i would get the highlights to my friends we would sit we had we'd get together as a group of four or five and we would we had whiteboards we'd draw because a lot of things was anatomy we would draw things yeah. and, and we would teach and we'd say this is what this does this is what this does and we teach each other and it was really a kind of a communal learning mm-hmm. but not a lot of schools are like that some of the and I would say probably more of the higher level schools. Obviously, there's a hierarchy of medical schools, too. At the time, University of South Florida was one of the newer schools. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was not one of the most competitive. I mean, they're all competitive in the United States. Uh, you can go to medical school elsewhere. Right. But then there's restrictions on where you go to residency and things. But American medical school, if you do well in an American medical school, you can choose, for the most part, where you want to, what you want to do. Yeah. If, you're, if you're in the top 10 of your class in any medical school, I'm pretty confident you could yeah, pretty much you choose write your, what you wanted to do. Yeah, um, I always think of the Grenada. Yeah, <laughs> no, yeah, like, absolutely. There's, a... <laughs> there's, there's a number of medical schools in the Caribbean, and yeah. uh, and those are, and they have ties to the United States hospitals. They'll do their their mm-hmm. uh, rotations in hospitals, but they are not guaranteed sort of the same things that we're guaranteed. Not nothing's guaranteed, but you don't have as much say in, in where you go or what you do. At what point for you was orthopedics, or, or were you an athlete like uh, growing up? And so did your your interest in sports medicine like where yeah. did that come? So to play? I was a quasi athlete. I was uh, a good athlete, uh, good at sports. I I just love sports yeah. altogether. I love following sports. I 
knew all the statistics. I would read the paper every morning, sports page, front to back. I'd memorize things. And I realized quickly that I wanted to be a part of athletics. And so the first thing you kind of learn in medical school is, do you want to be a, a physician or a surgeon? Do you want to do medicine or surgery? Because surgery is different, right? Surgery is, I have a problem, they have a problem, and I need to fix it. Or they have a problem, and let's try this. If that doesn't work, we'll try that. If that doesn't work, we'll try that. And and you will see them a lot and, and work with them on these. As a surgeon, you you want to fix their problem, and then they leave. Mm, interesting. Not that you don't like their patients, but, you, <laughs> but when patients keep coming back, it's typically they come back either because they have multiple problems or because they're not getting better. And so when you're seeing a patient a lot, it's usually, as an orthopedic surgeon, it's usually not a great thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but you do some of these reconstructions that I do in, in kids. I'll see them for at least a year. Yeah. And I'll see them every six to eight weeks, and I get to know their parents, and I know their friends. And, and so I've, I've done some, I've, I've had some people ask me to do certain things for them because we just get to know each other. Right, but right. But at the same time, most of the time, the, the success stories are you do the surgery, you see them once or twice, and you never see them again. Because they came back to you, they're saying, "Hey, I'm still in pain. I'm still in yeah. problems." So th- you have to determine what kind of personality you are. Do you want to be a fixer, or do you just want to be a you know a healer in a different way? You know, healing through through uh-huh. fixation. So uh, I realized that I thought my personality was better suited for surgery. Relatable is sponsored by TFA Soft Skills, your one-stop shop for workshops, coaching, speaking, and soft skills development. If you'd like to hire Teresa, visit www.tfasoftskills.com for more information. And so then I said, okay, I want to do surgery. So what kind of surgery do I want to do? Because there's obviously vast amounts of surgery. Right. And I always fell back on why I love sports. Like, what can I do that involves sports? Ah. And so in sports, you can do a family practice sports medicine fellowship, which is the primary care sports medicine, dealing with concussions and heart issues and those types of things. Or you can do orthopedic surgery where you actually fix people, yeah. fix athletes. And so that's where I chose that. And, and it was the best of both worlds for me, I thought. Yeah. And most of the patients in orthopedics are want to get better. They're younger for the most part. They're active for the most part. Like I mean, when you think about the profile of the patient, that's right. like an element too of what right. you're considering. Especially with sports medicine. Yeah. Right? Kids, are, kids and adults who are playing sports typically play sports because they're, they're active and they have a certain mentality. They want to be better. They want to work on their mm-hmm. healing. Uh, they want to be part yeah. of it. Yeah. They're not passive. They don't want to just, you fix them and they're just going to sit there and get better. They want to. Yeah. Be part of the rehabilitation, and I think that's important, and I like that because uh, I, have, I have friends who operate on people who are extremely sick, and they're in the intensive care unit, and they're in the hospital for weeks, and, and they have very terrible diseases, and they enjoy that, and I don't enjoy that. I enjoy young, active people. Yeah. Um, I always I have a friend who's he's a liver and pancreas surgeon. He does a lot of pancreatic cancer, and those patients do not do well, um, yeah. and he does... It's big operations on them but and i said to him one time we had dinner and i said i just and i remember him saying to me in medical school the sicker the better really? and i said to me it's the exact opposite we're both surgeons but i don't i don't like sick people i don't like <laughs> yeah. people who are hurt but sick people I like that's not your yeah. that's not my thing and we had dinner one night and i said i can't imagine doing what you do because how do you go home and and not just feel so Carry bad out. about yeah. your patients who who die you know and he said 
I can count on one hand how many people I've actually cured in my life. Wow. But I have some of the happiest patients in the world. And they think I'm great and I, and I love them as well. And I said, I, I, I'm not seeing the connection. And he said, I'm giving them, they, we all know they're going to die. We know that from the beginning. We talk about it. We say, this is not a curative procedure. I'm going to try to give you 18 to 24 months of life. And they say, if I can see my granddaughter graduate, if I can see my granddaughter um, uh, born, mm -hmm. if I can get to this wedding, you know, I have things I want to do over the next two years. And if you can get me those, that's all I'm asking for. Wow. And he's like, that's our goal. There, we, now we have a goal. And so when they reach that, they're extremely satisfied, even though eventually they yeah. don't make it. It's interesting that that like definition of success and how mm -hmm. it varies yeah. depending on who you are mm -hmm. and what doing yeah and you need you need, we need all of you right, right. <laughs> so like we need everybody I think, that's I think the you important know. thing is goals because yeah. if goals are different if people come to me and say I need to be guaranteed that I'm going to get to this certain point I can't guarantee you that I mean we have to have the same goals we have to that's our plan that's what we expect to happen but we can't say that there's a guarantee on that because then you're going to be very disappointed and I'm going to be very disappointed as well right. so if our goals are the same then our success should be the same as well. How long do you, like from the schooling part to actually like landing and working in the field that you want to do? So what's that, just the time period of that? So, like, so four years of medical school. Yep. And then I matched in orthopedic residency, which is one year of general surgery. So one year, uh, and it was to my, it was in mine, it was the same program at the University of Illinois in Chicago. So my first year we did general surgery. So I did like one month of orthopedics, but 11 months of ENT and transplant surgery and general surgery and all kinds of different surgeries just to kind of get the medicine part of surgery. And to like, take care I would of, think to the whole human right, body. Right, like intensive now, care, all yeah, those different things. Yeah. Even did some anesthesia rotations, some radiology rotations. You got to learn it's the so things cool. you're going to have to know yeah. for surgery as well. And then four years of orthopedics. And then I chose to do a second year, a, a extra year in what's called a fellowship. So resident after residency, you can you can start, you can get a job, you mm. can finish your residency, and apply to practice or hospital or whatever and get a job, or you can do a fellowship or multiple fellowships. I did one in sports mm -hmm. medicine, where I went to uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota, uh, to a group that uh, again was a very sports coverage heavy orthopedic mm -hmm. fellowship. So sports medicine fellowships can be more surgical based, like uh, I want to learn how to do the coolest arthroscopic techniques, or it can be more, I want to take care of athletes based, and that was mine. I mean, we obviously did a lot of surgery, but we also did a lot of sports coverage. I was with the Vikings twins, Timberwolves and Wild for parts or all That's of their really seasons. I traveled with the Vikings around the country. I was at practice. I was giving flu shots to the Minnesota Vikings, uh, doing medical things and surgical things with my mentor at the time. Uh, I went to spring training with Minnesota Twins. I, you know, you, you do, you're in the locker room. You're, you're Is that like pinch me moments for you? Like yeah. in terms of like that always being sure. a dream yeah. and now here you are in that, that's gotta yeah. be pretty cool. Being on the sideline and just being in the know, knowing yeah. what's going on. Yeah. You hear the reports on TV. Yeah. Oh, so-and-so did this today and you're like, they don't even know. You know? <laughs> yeah, they have no idea. Yeah, you know, yeah. And what you see and what you know. And, and I remember uh, my, my parents came to a Vikings game. We got them tickets. My wife, Kelly, and his, her parents came to a Vikings game. And I'm on the sideline, and they're up there. And 
I'm waving yeah. up to them and they're like, yeah. I'm just like, look, look at, at me, me. Yeah, <laughs> down here. Look at me down here. Yeah. What is the most, like, I would imagine maybe early on, like in terms of surgery, like nerve wracking, like what was that like when you first start doing that? Is there a lot of fear and I don't know how to have that headspace of like, yeah. you've got literally people say all the time, it's not life or death to right. like reassure themselves sure. of other things. Sure. And for you all in that profession, it, yeah. it can be. So how yeah. do you... It is nerve wracking when you are in charge of everything. So in your training, there are, there are times in your training when you will do surgery with another resident perhaps. Yeah. And the, the attending will be in the room or around, but they will not be necessarily watching you do things. So as you get older, you do more and more on your own, but you still have that person to fall back on to say, hey, you know, this isn't going well. Can you come in here and Help check this out and let me know what yeah. I should do here? Uh, and then the fellowship, same way. You're doing more of the same surgery. You're doing sports medicine surgery, arthroscopic surgery over and over and over again. And you do more and more each time you're, you're doing it. And then they sort of take their hands off and you do more parts of the case. But when you have to do the whole surgery, you have to position the patient. You have to know exactly what's going on, what equipment you need. It's very And you're directing everyone you're, around exactly, you. Exactly. You're now the captain of the ship and they're looking at you and no one else knows what you plan to do and how you plan to do it. And so that those first few months are, are sure. And then you're taking call and people are coming in with broken things and you have to figure out it, you're, it's on you to say, here's yeah. how we're going to fix it. And here's when we're going to fix it. And here's how we're going to rehabilitate you afterwards. This is my plan. Um, whereas before it was, we're going to fix you, but Dr. So-and-so is going to do all the other stuff. You will air cover. Yeah. And yeah. so now it's on you. And then is it just the more you do it, obviously, yeah, like with anything else, you think about like learning to drive, right? You yeah. like eventually get really, like if driving becomes yeah. almost second hand, like yeah. you just, you know, you're, you do it so much. Right. What about, uh, one of the things that I think as people are listening to this, that actually have an interest in medicine or want to pursue a career in medicine what do you feel like are good characteristics or, or strengths? Because I think, you know, there's got to be a, I don't know if it's a unique profile, but what are, in terms of your own path or other people, and now that you're more advanced in your career and you see young people coming up, you know, or less experienced, like, yeah. what do you see are like, these are the characteristics that actually are kind of a great foundation for someone that wants, given what you experience or exposed to in a career with right. medicine. I think the first one is is interest. I yeah. mean, you cannot be, you cannot go through all this and be, you know, I kind of like it or I think I want to do that. You have to be really bought in 100% because yeah. if you're not fully there, you're not going to put up with the stuff that we put up with. And one of the things, especially in sports medicine, one of my mentors, and I've heard this from other people too, so it's not just him, but one of the best abilities is availability. It's, so for sports medicine, he said, you know, you need to have you need to have everyone have your phone number. You give your phone number to your athletic trainers, you give your phone number to physical oh. therapists, you give your phone number to anyone who needs it because if they call you and say, hey, I have this kid or this person I need you to see and you get them in immediately, that's that's what they're looking for. They're looking for you to be able to take care of the people they have to have taken care of. And so I have a really good relationship with athletic trainers in Prince William County where I work. Uh, I have about nine high schools that I have affiliations with and they all have my cell phone number and they will text me any time of day or night and I will answer my phone or I will text them back and say, yes, I will get them in tomorrow. I now have a PA who can also see them as well. So that uh, makes things a little bit easier, but being available to people hmm. um, because if 
you don't, they will find somebody else who is. Right. And so that's that's a big one for me is 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 being conscientious and available. It doesn't always help your personal life. Uh, I get a lot of looks from my wife about you know why are you on your phone. Right. Well, right. Because I have this athletic trainer from so and so that just was had a kid go down the soccer game and sending me the name and sending me the number and I need to text my office and let them know they're going to get a phone call tomorrow and they need to get in immediately and you know no ifs ands or buts don't ask them questions just bring them in tomorrow um, and that's been and helpful for me it just struck me too that maybe I'm stating the obvious but first like for you and your side of it like you're this is so routine and you see maybe a lot of the same types of injuries but for anybody that's going through it like it's a massive event mostly Mm -hmm. for Mm -hmm. these kids and especially kids right where there's a lot of fear or to your point earlier around maybe it's derailing Mm -hmm. it's like for you to be able to kind of show up and emotionally carry that like because i'm sure you're getting a lot of energy at you yeah all day yeah yeah uh there's like i said there's a lot of tears there's some disbelief yelling and screaming at times yeah uh from kids who tell me you can't tell me that I just did that I, I you can't tell me I can't play soccer for the next nine months right uh, I have colleges looking at me what do you want me to do right and I look at them and say what would you like me to do you know I didn't injure your knee I'm just telling you what you did and what you need to do now and here's our new plan here's our new goal so you have to put that away and yeah. you have to get through this part yeah uh, and it, like I said it hit me really more the other night you know 10 days ago when my son broke his leg it was it you don't realize it until it hits you, right? And then my son's looking at me saying, well, what about my end of my basketball season? And when will I be back at basketball? When can I shoot a basket? And what am I supposed to do? How do I get around on crutches? And, and where do I sleep? And, and you're thinking, oh yeah, I do this all day and put people in casts or put them in braces or do surgery on them and send them home on crutches. And, and then the parents just have to, you know, right. their whole life, yeah. life changes. Right. And you realize that when it happens to you, oh yeah, that's, you know, it's it's not inconsequential. Right. I think that's really helpful, too. Like, it's certainly going to help on the empathy scale of yeah. being able to relate to people. Sure. What would you say is the best part of it now that, like, you're fully entrenched and you have a, a successful career and you're, you're in your practice? Like, I call it the shower test, but what is the best part of what you do where you get up and you're like, yeah, let's get after it today? Uh, I think, you know, there's, there's days when uh, you have... I, I struggle because uh, I think with most physicians, they really focus on the bad outcomes and not the good. Mm. And so luckily we have a lot of people saying thank you and I'm so much better and you were great and uh, I can walk again or I don't have pain anymore, I'm playing tennis or I'm back to football. You see a kid on the field who you did surgery on and they're getting a college scholarship to play football or basketball or whatever else. And I always have to make myself remember those times or or when they're saying thank you to sit there and be in the moment. Take it in. Take it in because most of the time what you do is say, oh, okay, great, because I did my job. You know, you're back. I did my job. Yeah. Great. Let's move on. But the person who says, you know, I'm still having pain and I still have a problem and I can't play tennis. You told me I'd be playing tennis by three months and it's four months and I can't play tennis. Why can't I play tennis? And those are the ones that keep you up at night, you know, mm-hmm. and those aren't even bad. I mean, you, have, you can have complications where people get infections or have, uh, you know, things that, that affect their life long term from the injury or from whatever else. And those are the ones you focus on. But I I try to understand that I'm doing good in a lot of respects. And but you have to really turn your brain into understanding it. Compartment, not maybe compartmentalized, but like the look at the whole picture, not just the that was going to be the flip side is what is the most frustrating or the most difficult? 
honestly, the most difficult is the, is the administrative things that we do. Yeah, the the paperwork, the you know insurance, insurance companies, yeah. um, the prior authorizations, the phone calls. You you schedule a surgery which you think is very straightforward. Uh, this person has a kneecap that continues to dislocate, and you're going to do a ligament reconstruction in order to keep their kneecap in place, and they deny it, and you get a phone call saying, well, why do you want to do the surgery? You say, because their kneecap is dislocating, and I need to put a ligament to, and they ask you 15 questions, and a lot of times they're not even orthopedic surgeons, and they're asking questions about, what about this, and what about that, and what about that, and you can tell these questions are just written down on a piece of paper that they just want to you know, check their boxes. It's like, why am I... You know, I'm just trying to heal someone. Yeah, this is yeah. this is not a experimental thing. This is a very straight down the middle kind of thing. Right. And so that kind of wears you down at times when you want it when you have something you you feel like you should do and need to do, and you're getting questioned about it or getting denials and you have to fight about administrative things in the office. You know, I'm, I'm in private practice, which is great because I'm I have my own uh, schedule. I can I can if like my kids always ask me who's your boss and I say I really don't have one. You know, yeah. I, if I don't want to work tomorrow, I'll just call and say, move. you have to move all these people. I don't want to do that because people get upset, but I could <laughs> right. if I wanted to just say, I'm not working Friday, you know, on Thursday, I'll just do that. I've never done it in my life, but yeah. I guess I could. <laughs> um, and so, but in private practice, there's a lot more, there's HR because we, we run our own practice. We have an administrator, but as the six surgeons that are in the practice, we get, we have meetings all the time where we talk about issues and hiring and and people come to you saying your front desk was not nice to me and they didn't return my phone call. And so, you know, a lot of... It's like of, the business side, yeah, right, yeah. of healing. Like yeah. my brother-in-law's a dentist mm-hmm. and, and has his own practice. And, I, you know, it's like to, to be effective and be successful, you really have to be great at two things. Yeah. You have to be great at being a, a practitioner at what mm-hmm. you do. Yeah. And then also just that all that other stuff that some people, that's just their job, right? right. Like running right. a business or owning a business right. or we like- are, it, we're, we're small you know, business owners. Yeah, yeah. We are and we have to, we're a service industry. Yeah. We have to, you know, we try to teach our front desk, smile at people, look at yeah. people, eye contact, say good morning, uh, say thank you. Yeah. Uh, you know, things that should come inherent, but some people, just their personality is such that they just, you know, they look down or they, and you need to have people welcome in your practice, almost like welcome in your home. Yeah. Uh, I went to a practice, this, I went to an appointment this morning and they said to me, welcome to our practice. I see you're a new patient. And I said, that was oh, a nice feeling. Nice. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. welcome. You you're know? like writing it down yeah, like, to go I back say, to your should, practice. Yeah. Right. yeah. You should say things like that because yeah. it makes you feel welcome. Like you're being yeah. noticed, like you're here for the first time. Well, welcome here. Yeah. You know? Uh, and so we have to work on a lot of those things. And HR is rough. You know, it's it's a lot of headache. Yeah. And things that you don't want to do at 6 o'clock at night after you've seen 30 patients. But when you have an impromptu meeting because somebody's done something that they shouldn't have done, then we have to get on the phone and do that. And it takes away time from other things. How do you think about, like, when you get, like, surgeons get a bad rap around ego? Like, do you, do you feel like there's kind of a mis, you know, a kind of a, misrepresentation that like um all surgeons have like super egos and that they kind of have to in order to be able to do what they do i think there is uh i don't think it's a misconception because i know a lot of people who who have really big (laughs) egos Uh, yeah and i think sometimes it's they have an ego because they're hiding something else you know they're Mm. they're going to tell you how great they are and i think it's more of if you had to tell somebody how great you are you're probably not that great honestly Right. Um, so my my personality is more of uh, I'll show you, and so I don't think I have a huge ego. I mean, we have to as surgeons because you have to be a little bit like I'm in charge. 
and confidence whatever's to do happening the thing, in this room yeah. is because i'm doing it i'm going to tell everybody what's going to happen but i don't mind taking you know people saying well what about you know have you ever tried this mm-hmm. you know even people who like i might my pa she might say you know um i was doing a case with another doctor one of my mm-hmm. partners and and he was having a hard time doing the same thing and he used this and he got it and i was like okay sure i mean let's try it you know and some people would look at her and say i'm the surgeon I know what's going on because they feel they feel threatened by that. Mm-hmm. I don't feel threatened by that. If I can, if somebody knows a better way to do something, yeah, I'm happy to try it. So I'm a little bit different, I think, than than a lot of surgeons that I know. I think orthopedists by trade are a little bit more laid back. Well, um, yeah, we we tend to be uh, more athletically inclined. We tend to be a little more. We don't tend to take ourselves too seriously. But yeah. there are, and I think more in the academic. Mm-hmm. Then there's kind of academic and there's community. I'm a more community based. Obviously, I don't. I'm not a Georgetown University right. doctor or anything. But uh, and but you train in a lot of academic mm-hmm. centers, and I trained in academic centers as everybody else did. And academic doctors tend to have a little bit more of a, you know, I'm pretty important, and I'm going to tell you how important I am. You know, so it's not a misconception, but not everybody's like that. Yeah. I don't think I'm like that. I think if you asked my staff and my patients, they'd probably say I'm, I'm pretty, pretty low back. key. Yeah. yeah. We are busy scheduling relatable interviews for 2023, and we love our relatable community. If you or someone you know would be a good guest for relatable, let us know. You can send an email to info at tfasoftskills.com. Include the potential guest name and contact information. Please send all suggestions to info at tfasoftskills.com. When we were interviewing uh, surgeons for my husband, my husband has a really good sense of humor. And like, we picked a surgeon because he laughed at one of Paul's jokes. And it was like, I mean, weirdly, right? Because you 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 have to like, and I remember people telling us, you just really have to like your surgeon. Sort sure. of at the end of the day, you have to feel some sort of connection right. for whatever reason. Like maybe it's like you, uh, you're in their academic prowess. You're like, oh, that's the guy or mm-hmm. gal because of the credentials. Yeah. Or for other people, I think it's like, you know that you're sort of like you're putting your life in their hands so then sure. that well some people like... some people ask me they'll say uh you know i need this procedure done and i don't do the procedure so i'll say well i know somebody who does do that yeah. procedure and i will say to them you know what are you looking for if both people can do the procedure about the same but one person will sit here and, and listen to you and talk to you and you'll see them every time or do you want to go to the place where you don't care who they are what they do if they see you if they don't i just want to have it done well and some people say, I'd rather have that person. And some people, because I'll say to them, do you like the fact that we're sitting here talking right now and we're going through options and we're talking about things you could or couldn't do? Because there's a certain place you're going to go, you're not going to get that. You're, every time you go, you're going to see a different person. They'll do a really good job, but you're not going to, you're not going like to know your, you're not going to know your surgeon. Yeah. Or I can send you to a place where you will get a very good job done, but you will see the same guy every time and he will become a person that you Mm -hmm. know yeah and most of the time people will say the latter which is the person that they could get to know but some people say i don't really care about my surgeon i just want to be taken care of and like just fix it yeah fix it and and move on but i would rather have a doctor that i enjoyed to talk to right yeah for sure let's talk a little bit about just like your own path and like one of the things i like to talk to people about like as you've navigated through the different parts of your life was there anybody like a mentor even like a a situation for you that was a pretty pivotal crossroads where you felt like it sort of changed your path or it had like an impact on you 
um, in a significant way. Yeah, I, I told this tell the story and everybody thinks, oh, this is definitely what happened to you. This is why you chose that. And it has nothing to do with it. I broke my femur when I was seven. But uh-huh. that didn't turn me into an orthopedic surgeon. You know, I people say, oh, you should write a, you know, that on your, you know, on your essays, you should write about your breaking your leg. I said, you know, but that's, that's really a lie because I didn't really do anything. It didn't really cause me to do anything. But honestly, like I said pre- previously, it was just more of an idea I had. Like, I, I don't know what I'm doing right now. Uh, I'm not doing anything that I really enjoy in school, so let me try something different. And yeah. that was the crossroads, but it was more of a self-directed crossroads. It was, like I said, I didn't have anyone in my family who said, as a doctor, this is what I think you should do or should focus on. And so I just sort of found my way. Once you found it, did you, were you ever deterred? Or like once that, after that sophomore year, it was like you were off to the races and it was, did you ever want to quit? Did you ever... <laughs> I mean, some, you know, sometimes when you've been up for, you know, 36 hours, you just, you're just spent and you think, why am I doing this? Or, or you just crawl back in bed and your pager, I mean, pagers at the time, yeah. uh, literally you crawl in bed and your pager goes off three minutes later as you're just falling asleep and then you're going back to where you just were. And, and it's for something that you don't really feel like you should be doing and you just want to just literally explode, you know? Right. But uh, those are transient moments, uh, and then you get some sleep, and the next day happens, and uh, and and things you know. And like something around. exciting happens, or maybe or it's just like, you just you yeah. just go home and you reset, and you go back the next day, and you see your friends because you you become very close with these people because yeah. it's almost like you're going through you know very traumatic things, and you're you're spending all kinds of time with people. And some of my best friends were friends that I was with in residency, even non orthopedic friends. One of my best friends is a urologist who I trained with in Chicago and, and he and I did our first year general surgery year together and we ended up living together most of the time we were in Chicago and he was doing urology and I was doing orthopedics and we were coming home and sharing stories about our different things. Yeah. We were in a shared situation no matter what because we didn't see each other very much. We lived together but he was on call sometimes and I was on call the next day so I wouldn't see him for three straight days or four straight days because it would be you know just I'm not home when he's home because we weren't home very much. Yeah. But um, it's it's definitely a shared situation where you understand what they're you going through. Yeah. Why is it that it is so, they put so much pressure and like they're so sleep deprived and like, <laughs> why do they construct it that way? Is it? Well, it's different now. Oh, it is? So they have an 80 hour work week, which we did not have. Uh, so you can only work 80 hours, uh, which seems, I mean, that's a, a lot. significant, a lot, right? yeah. But 80 hour work week. And um, when you're on call, so when you're on call, typically you go in in the morning, so you get there at six in the morning. And you're on call through six o'clock the next morning, so twenty-four hour shift, let's say. And then you go home. You have to go home. As a resident, you want to you want to operate. You want to see pathology, right? So if you're on call and at midnight a femur fracture comes in, you're thinking, great, I I'm admitting this femur fracture. I'm maybe putting the traction pin in. I'm getting them all set up for the order tomorrow, so I can be in on the case. So I can do the case, or I can be a part of the case. But now, if you see that femur fracture at midnight, you're going to go home at six in the morning. And so you're going to miss out on that, uh, that you, so it was, and so a lot of people that I talk to, and I probably have seen the same thing, we feel like, and it may be generational, you know, right. oh, that generation's not as good as we were, whatever right. but you feel like the generation now doesn't have the experience that we had. Interesting. Because we had a goal in mind. We weren't just trying to work up the patient, we were trying to work up the patient so we could learn about the patient and treat the patient and do everything to learn how to do that case. Mm-hmm. And if... Every time the femur fracture comes in, you have to go home the next day. 
you're not maybe you're never going to learn fear fractures, how to do or it. Hopefully, you get some from other people, but maybe you don't. Maybe coincidentally, that would happen that way. But um, but the eight-hour work week is is definitely different. So there was times that um, I remember one week I was a hospital, small hospital in North Side of Chicago, and there was three of us at the hospital, just three residents of the whole hospital. It was a small hospital, and one was on vacation. There was two of us covering the whole hospital for a week. And so I took call and we took weekend, the whole call, the whole weekend was on call. And we had an apartment across the street where we, that was our call room, that's where we stayed. And so when you're on call, you're not necessarily up the whole night, you can be. Yeah. You're on, you're on call, so if, if somebody comes okay. in, you're, you're there. Um, and I had to take call, I think two days during the week and then the whole weekend. So I, I figured out, I was at that hospital, I think 132 hours that week. Of 168 hours oh my a week. Gosh. Now I wasn't operating the whole time, and I wasn't up the whole time, but I was at that hospital for that's you know 80 percent, 85 percent of the yeah. week. Yeah. Then did you get to see some cool stuff? Yeah, like I mean, you know, that's, yeah. that's where you learn. You know, yeah. when you're there, you're learning, and when you're when you're not working, you're supposed to be reading and studying for your tests, the things you have to do to to get by to to pass your boards. You yeah, because that's the other thing we're talking about. You know, when can you get a job? You have a board's examination after your residency you have to pass. That's a, a, a one-time written test. And then after your second year, you have to do an oral boards where you go in front of orthopedic surgeons and present cases and show them what you did, how you worked at the patient, what your indications were, and then show them what you did surgically. And they basically talk about how good or badly oh, wow. you did or complications and what you, you know, if you have a complication, you have to explain what happened and was it your fault and did you do the proper thing to make sure you're safe. And then once you do that and you pass that, then you're board certified for 10 years and you do it every 10 years. You do some other things. But you, in, in some cases, to get a real job, you have to be I mean, it's certified. reassuring, yeah, actually, sure. as like as yeah. a layperson yeah. to hear about the rigor and right. how much you, you have to go through. Right. Like, you, it sort of explains, I think, a lot around, like, you know, in terms of, like, income level, everything that you guys are sort of... Um, the that's sort of stereotypes that are associated with it. It's like you you earn sort of every penny given yeah. everything that you have well, to go And you through. have to keep up with it. You can't yeah, just say, can't. okay, I'm, I'm good. Yeah. And, and 40 years from now, I'm still doing the same operation, which is probably either fallen out of favor yeah. or has been shown to be not appropriate. Yeah. And you're still doing because that's all you know how to do. I mean, you have to change with the with times. It. There are operations I do now that I never did in residency or fellowship. Yeah. Because they've been invented since then. What would you say, like, if you can, I don't know if you could, like, what, what's been, like, one of your most complicated cases or situations? For me, a lot of my most complicated are based on amount of injury, let's say. So, okay. say, for example, I do a lot of ACL reconstructions, anterior cruciate ligament, like one of the center ligaments in the knee, but there's four major ligaments. And so you can have two or three or four ligaments torn. Then your knee is just completely unstable and you have to do multiple reconstructions and multiple incisions and very long surgeries. And I had one uh, in the past few months, a young girl who was extremely large, extremely overweight. Uh, and, she, and part of the reason she tore her ligaments like she did was because she was such a big person. And that creates even more uh, difficulty because mm -hmm. the size of the, of the patient, size of the leg, size, you know, just the amount of the larger the incisions, the risk of infection, it's the, the things that keep you up at night. Ah. Um, and so, you know, and anytime you're doing a surgery you haven't done in a long time or never done before, there are times you'll do a surgery you've never done before. And those, you know, yeah. you, I'll talk to friends who've done them. Yeah. I will 
go home and have you know phone calls or text messages and I'll read and I'll and I will study and I'll look at the anatomy and so there's times and I'm literally like I'm back in school sitting yeah. there with a book in my hand or watching YouTube videos or we have a a, a, a website or a, a video site that people post usually interesting or complicated cases mm-hmm. on, and you can usually find somebody who's done something like that yeah and you can say well what did he do and you've got to look at that and go oh I do that but I might do this instead or I might use this graft instead of that graft or something else. Are you always thinking about work on yes. some level? Like does it, yeah, is yes. it just always kind of in it, you? It, like I said, it, it's, it's tough because uh, maybe on vacation, the maybe like the middle part of the vacation, like the first two days, you're usually kind of thinking about yeah. how you just left and those few patients you saw the Friday before and you're thinking about or you might think about the things you have to do when you get back and then those middle three days, you're like, oh, okay, great. And then, as the is it's coming to an end, yeah. you're like, oh right, yeah. now I got to think about that person who came in on yeah. who's going to see me as soon as like first patient when I get back is going to be that lady who yeah, needs need... this or I did that or right. whatever. So yeah, there's a lot of. What do you do? Uh, just really quick, and then we'll we'll get sort of wrap up. But um, I'm interested for you, like because of the job that you have and the stress around that. What are some of your like rituals and habits, right? That that kind of help to kind of keep you. Are you med- do you meditate? I've tried. Yeah. Um, I, I, I wish I was better I at know. it. I know. I can't do it. I try. Um, <laughs> I try. I try to turn out the noise, but I will literally be listening to a meditation and things will be going through my head <laughs> yeah. about a patient or a surgery yeah. or yeah. what's coming up. And, I, and I'm thinking, I'm not supposed to be thinking about this right now, but I'm still thinking about it. So I have a hard time doing that. Um, exercising is, is good for me. Um, I think it's important uh, for, for me and for to kind of take the stress away. Sometimes before a big day of surgery, the ne- the day before I'd like to do some exercise so I kind of get some energy out. Yeah, adrenaline. Um, afterwards, it's hard to do so because you're usually pretty spent afterwards. But beforehand, just to kind of get to a kind of a cooler level. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's hard. I mean, sometimes I don't sleep well a lot. A lot I don't sleep well the night before if I'm really thinking about something. Uh, or I'll wake up. If 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 you wake up, then it's like sleep's over. Right. You know, if like <laughs> trying to get back. The to dog sleeping. jumps on the bed at four in the morning, and I'm getting up at six. Four to six is pretty much a wash. It's a wash. I'm yeah. staring at the ceiling and thinking about things. So, um, but exercise is probably my big one. I wish, like I said, I wish I could meditate better. I wish I had more. I've talked to people about it, and some people have different techniques that I've tried, and I just I, yeah, and haven't been super successful in it. Yeah, I'm trying like five minutes just at, like because yeah. I'm the same way. I'm very restless. Yeah. So it's like, okay, I'll just see if I can do it five minutes, three times a day to like yeah. reset. Yeah. Um, tell me a little bit about, um, we, we talked a, a bit before, you know, I'm a big fan of soft skills development and I feel like I'm a, a little bit on a crusade to help um, people understand the importance of, and you talked a little bit about it in terms of your practice and some of those, you know, just the like making eye contact and being able to communicate effectively. I, as a physician, like what would you say for you if you had to pick one or two that you think are critical to your success? And and by soft skills, it could be like influence and collaboration, communication, you know, there's a whole host of them, yeah. but like, what do you think really help kind of differentiate I think communication is important, yeah. um, and one of the things that um, I talk about a lot with my wife is I communicate a lot at work. I'm not a I'm not a big talker. I'm not a big extrovert. I'm more of an introvert. I don't love to just talk to people, you know. And, <laughs> yeah. and before I did what I did, a lot of times 
if I would see somebody on an airplane or if I walked up to the desk at a hotel, I wouldn't necessarily engage in conversation. I would just, I'm here for a reason. I'm here to give you my credit card and I'll take my room and I'll see you later. And now I find myself talking to people. You know, I'll say, oh, you know, how's your day? Like, where yeah. are you from? Or, you know, do you grow up around here? Or just something like that. Or, and, and it's stuff that I never did before because I realized that's important. And I realized that that's what you're supposed to do. And I didn't always realize that. But when I come home from work, it's almost like I'm playing a part sometimes at work because I'm so uh-huh. effusive. And my pa- I think if, if my patients would talk to my wife, I think they would say, oh, my gosh, your husband is so this or so that. And she'd be like, really? You sure? <laughs> yeah. We talk about the this, same person? Yeah. Because I'll, I'll literally sometimes gather myself before I walk into a room. I, I had somebody tell me one time that they put a sign on the door that says smile. Mm-hmm. Because they, you almost have to walk in and present yourself in a certain way. Now we're wearing masks, but you know, either way, yeah. I'll be smiling under you my mask. You can see it, but, yeah, 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 yeah. But I will, I will just have to walk in, and I, even if I'm not feeling up to it or whatever, you have to just put it aside and say, "Good morning, hey, you know, I'm, my here, my name is this, and and you know, what, what can I help you, and all these things." And you're, and it's almost like you're playing a role, and then you go home and you don't want to talk to anybody. <laughs> I'm done. Yeah, I just want to just sit and just stare or watch TV or read a book or something else, you know, or exercise. Um, and so communication's important because people expect it and they want to know their options. I think that's a big one is I don't think people should, I don't think you should ever tell somebody what to do. Uh-huh. Even if, and you can, you can push them in a certain way without telling them, here's what you have to do. Right. You can, like I tell people, I'll give them three options. And they'll say, which one should I choose? I said, well, I wouldn't give you an option if I didn't want you to do it. Right. So I'm not going to give you an option I think is a bad option. So any option I give you is a good option. So you need to choose which one. Do you want to be aggressive? Do you want to be passive? Do you want to try this this first or whatever? And and so I'm always about that. I was talking to my partner the other night, and he said, your first option should always be do nothing. I don't care if their leg is hanging on by, <laughs> by the skin. Yeah. You can do nothing. You cannot you can do nothing right now. That is an option. I don't recommend it, but it's an right, option. Right. But it's always important to say, you know, non-surgery is the first option or doing nothing is the first option. Because they're in a surgeon's office and a lot of people walk in thinking, uh oh, I'm gonna get right, surgery. Right. You know, and I'll that, tell them I'm gonna send you to my partner who does back surgery. Not because you need surgery, but because you have an MRI that shows a very bad herniated disc that you might need surgery on, and I don't know because I don't do that surgery. But I want to make sure that he tells you that you do or don't. Right. So I'm not sending him just, you're not signing, I'm not signing up for surgery. But be aware that it may happen, but let's get his opinion on that. Yeah. But it's just the way you communicate with people. Because I think sometimes surgeons are, all right, I know better than you. And I'm going to tell you what you should do. Right. And some people take to that. Some people are like, oh, yeah, you know. You know better. But a lot of people don't like being told what to do, even though you're... Or then you're a part of it. If you give me a choice, at least I feel like... Now we're in this together, right. and it isn't just like you telling me what to do, right. but I have like a voice of some, right. yeah. And I think conscientiousness is always big for me. It's uh, that's mm, just the way I am. I like that. But I like my staff to be that way too. If I tell my staff, um, you know, this person's coming in, and this is what I want to do, I don't want to an hour later have to say, remember at eleven that patient's coming in. I want them to take that and do with it what they should do. Right. So I want them to be conscientious because I'm very conscientious on how things are done mm-hmm. and making sure that if you send me a text message about this patient, my athletic trainer, for example, from one of the schools and says, you know, this girl is coming in. I want this girl to come in. This is how old she is. This is her date of birth. 
um, that I send that text message immediately to my staff to say, here's who's coming in. And I don't want to have to walk in the next morning and go, oh, by the way, remember. Like you have to rem- yeah. remember I sent you that text last night. So let's make sure it's done. Um, so I like my staff to be that way, too. And I, I hold them to that standard. Um, my I like PA, conscientious. I think my that's PA is very to... good at that. And yeah. if she wasn't, I would have a hard time keeping her because um, when you, when something is supposed to be done, it's done. And yeah. I don't have to check up and make sure it got done. And that, you know, and that bodes well for her too and her right. advancement, right? right? Like that's the, um, okay. And then the last thing would just be when you think back on young Dr. Rick <laughs> uh, and, you know, you think about sort of, is there at any point like you would give him counsel to make the path a little bit easier? Like what would you, what advice would you give him? You know, I always said, because I was talking about my, my first year of medical school, my friends who went to bigger yeah. universities, uh, I always thought to myself, you know, you probably would have been smarter if I'd just gone to, I, I grew up 15 minutes from University of Maryland. My mom went there. A hundred people from my class went there. Uh, I should have just gone to University of Maryland and just had a big campus field, uh, lots of opportunities, lots of different, I could have done medical school and been, you know, kind of up to speed early. But then I think about it, and I went to Vanderbilt, a liberal arts school, small school, great sports. And I, yeah. the reason I went there was great sports, small school. That's what I wanted. And I would, but I wouldn't change that because I learned a lot. I, I feel like I have a better depth of things. I had no friends who went to University of Maryland. They knew who their friends were going to be. They knew what fraternity they were going to be in. Right. They knew what they were going to do from the time they walked on campus. And I was more of a, let me find my way. I didn't mm-hmm. know a lot of people in Nashville, obviously. And, and the school was good because I learned a lot of different things. I have a lot of friends who are lawyers or in yeah. business or yeah. you know, not that just... That diversity. Yeah. Of, yeah. Yeah. So I, I struggle with that because sometimes I ask myself, what could I have done differently? And I tell my kids too, I say, it doesn't necessarily matter where you go. It's what you do when you got there. Right. So when yeah. all these, these kids today, and, and I understand it, they're all competitive with, hey, I got into there. I didn't get into there. I got into there. I didn't get into there. And I just said to my daughter, I said, you know, if you get into this school, if you do well at that school, you can go anywhere you want. You know, if you want to go to, she's talking about professional school, maybe physical therapy or something mm-hmm. like that. I said, if you do well at, at this school, mm-hmm. you know, even if it might not be the sexiest school, if you do well at this school, you can go anywhere you want. Yeah. And so just, if you like the school, go to that school. You right. have to think, oh, I should have gone to here. I should have gotten to there. As long as you're happy. Yeah. yeah. I feel like that's the one thing I wish we could tell kids, you know, it's so hard. You have to sort of live it to understand the perspective right now. It's so narrow, right? Mm-hmm. You only see right. this like finite view of things. Right. And to your point around like wherever you end up, you can have a great experience. It's what you make of it. Right. And then in, and that experience will lead to other things that you can't even anticipate. You just, you yeah. know, you have no life experience to be able to right. like right. To base if, it on. And if, it's, if it wasn't, if it was easy. Right then you don't really learn anything. Right. Either. You know, it's like I always think to myself, my daughter, if she goes to a school, I really hope she goes and she loves it and she stays there and she graduates from there. That'd be great. But if she goes there and she realizes she doesn't like it yeah. and she transfers someplace else and she realizes, well, I really like this, then she's going to have a different path. And that's right. okay as long as it leads her to the right result. Yeah. But you all always think, well, I just hope it's easy for her. I hope she just enjoys it. She just loves where she goes. And then it's easy. But... You learn stuff when you go through totally the other stuff. Like too. discomfort. I always feel like discomfort's it's not a bad thing, right? Not it's always. kinda how you can not always. You, you learn you learn more from your failures than your successes for the most part. I right. think that's why I think I take the failures 
So, so and yeah. even if they're not fair, just, you know, like a hiccup in the I road. I could have done that better. Yeah. Well, you just, you just, it just weighs on you, but you learn about it. You learn what, you know, when you have something that you did that didn't turn out right, you can always go back and say, if I've just, this screw been a little bit longer, if this, if I, if I got into this fracture a couple days earlier and it mm-hmm. wasn't so, you know, healed or whatever it was, it would have gone better if I got a little bit, you know, maybe another anchor in that position. And then you learn from that. Right. You know, and when it goes well, you go, oh, well, well, great. You know, I did, I did exactly what I was supposed to do. Yeah. But you don't learn anything. You feel good. feels good. <laughs> yeah. But you don't learn anything. But, you know, sometimes learning hurts, too. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Thank you so much. You're welcome. I'm really glad we got it. Yeah. I'm glad I got to know you yeah. a bit better. It's sure. been really nice. And I really, I learned a lot myself. So okay. it was great conversation. It. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Layfield, for coming on the show. I appreciate your honesty and candor about the rigorous workload and sacrifices you had to make to succeed in medical school and the early years of being a doctor. I loved what you said about the importance of making an effort to talk with people when you would have preferred to stay quiet and how that has helped you significantly in your career. And I really liked your advice about being open and curious, which led you to have a diverse education and a great mix of friends with different interests and strengths. Thank you to Missy for producing this episode and Hannah for your support. A big thank you to our relatable community. We continue to grow our audience and so appreciate all of our listeners who have stayed with us. If you enjoyed this conversation, please take a moment and subscribe either on YouTube or your favorite streaming platform. Relatable is sponsored by TFA Soft Skills, and you can find more information about Relatable and our sponsor by visiting www.dfasoftskills.com. Until next time, this is Teresa Freeman with Relatable. Stay connected.